Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Father, as we turn our attention now to the ministry of your word, I ask that you would be pleased by your spirit to teach us, that you would open up our minds to understand your scriptures, and that you would work grace in our hearts, and that your spirit would produce in our hearts good soil for your word, which is described as a seed to be planted in, that it would grow up and bear much fruit, taking root in our hearts. May the words of my mouth as I preach and the thoughts of every one of our hearts as we listen be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, who are our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Buckle up. We have a lot of information going to come at you today, and uh, that's because we're not focusing on one text of scripture today, but on a topic that is unfolded throughout scripture. And it's always difficult to do one of those, okay? I'm just gonna tell you, if you've never tried preaching, if you've never tried preaching on a topic of scripture, that's, that's difficult. We're gonna be looking at a doctrine, a teaching of the scriptures, as, as in, in as much fullness as we can pack in the next hour, called common grace. The doctrine, the, the truth of scripture called, that theologians referred to as common grace. Common grace is a very helpful and a timely truth for us today now to be pondering. And it is taught in a lot of places in the scriptures. We're going to see some of those places and talk about them together today. This might end up feeling a a little bit more like a Sunday school class than we're typically accustomed to um, experiencing in worship on Sunday morning, but we haven't had Sunday school for a long time, and so maybe that's what we need today. If you're wondering why this guy on this topic on this day, that's a fair question, and I'll just skip to the moral of the story. The, the, The moral is, be careful what you say in a meeting. Sometimes when you, you, you just you know, spontaneously think, well, that, somebody should do that. That would be helpful to talk about, I think. Other people around you sometimes hear you offering your services. <laughs> We're gonna go on an adventure today through the scriptures. And our starting point is a pair of verses from Psalm 145. We find in these verses in verses eight and nine of that chapter, an amazing assertion about the kindness and the grace of God. We read it at the beginning of the service, maybe when we weren't dialed in yet. I'm gonna read them again to us. This is an amazing, it's almost universal, not almost, but a universal statement about God's kindness, mercy, and grace. Listen to this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And normally when we speak, think of God's kindness, his mercy, particularly the word grace, we're thinking about saving grace, redeeming grace. That can't be what the psalmist is thinking about as he writes these words, because redeeming grace is particular grace. It's narrow. It, the, it, 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 it comes by, the gospel call goes out broadly. It says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. It goes out broadly and it is granted narrowly. It says in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to save some from destruction for his own glory and purposes, to magnify his mercy and love of sinners. But there is more to God's grace than saving grace. 
there's more data in scripture than that can be accounted for under the category or the topic of saving or redeeming grace. Distinctions are handy things. What's a distinction? A distinction is like my kids decided to sort the Legos recently in, by color in their room. They spent like days doing it and they had a blast. But distinctions are like Lego bins. You have a bunch of the same or similar items. They are all Legos. But not all Legos are quite the same and you can sort them into categories. How you decide what the categories are are distinctions. You distinguish between the, the, the subtle differences between various things. That's what a distinction is. Theologians, as we talk about God's grace, as it is taught in scripture, have made a distinction. And that distinction is between special grace and common grace. Special grace is the grace, when we, it's what we normally think of when we think about God's grace. It's redeeming grace, covenant love. God's putting his love on some people who are dest- otherwise destined for destruction, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and he says, I love you. Not because you deserve it, but because I choose to. Because I want to, and because I can. I love you. You're mine. I'm pulling you up out of that destruction that you're in, that death that you're in. I'm giving you life. I'm giving you an inheritance in my kingdom. That's God's special grace. Special because it's not for everyone. It's for those whom God has called and chosen. Common grace is everything else that's kind on God's part towards this undeserving, wicked world. It's, Peter talks about God's grace as being manifold. Manifold means varied, big, got so, it's got a lot going on to it, and that's what God's grace is like, and uh, distingui- making distinctions between aspects of his grace and kindness is important, or we'll get confused and we'll end up equivocating in and compromising in ways that we, we can't and we shouldn't. It'll get us into trouble. So we have to think carefully about what scripture teaches. And this distinction of between common grace, God's general kindness toward an unbelieving and undeserving creation versus his special grace, which is like his redeeming work through Jesus in the lives of some. There turns out to be a lot to talk about in this second category, which we don't normally address or think about much, this category of, of common grace. There turns out to be a lot of grace in that category, in that Lego bin. There is a lot that this unbelieving, undeserving world, a lot of favor that we enjoy at the hand of God and we as believers are beneficiaries along with the rest of the world of all of these kindnesses, okay? What I want to do today, because I think it's timely and helpful for us in the midst of the day in which we live, to bring some of these kindnesses of God to the fore so that we can look at them together, appreciate them, give thanks to God for them, be grateful, and figure out how we should respond and live in light of them. Now, there's a further distinction that you can make. Once you're in the Lego bin of common grace, non-saving favor towards all of creation, that's, what, that's the kind of grace that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 145. Once you're in that Lego bin, you can sort them again. <laughs> of God's kindnesses to this world generally, there's negative and positive. By negative, I mean things that he withholds or restrains in this world and things that he gives and produces in the world, okay? We're gonna talk about the negative bin first. What are the two main things that God withholds that's kind on his part or restrains in this world? 
First is sin. God restrains sin. So we are all desperately wicked. That's what scripture testifies. You and me, everybody else in Bloomington, everybody in Indiana, everybody in America and the world who has ever lived is desperately wicked. God looked down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there was any who understood, any who sought for God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. We're born that way. And scripture testifies to this. So building on that verse I just quoted, the Apostle Paul adds these really difficult words for, our, for us to hear. He says, describing us in our nature as sinners, he says, their throat is an open grave. He, he, just imagine, the image of an open grave is powerful, right? It's in the movies. If you've ever stood at a graveside that's open, a grave that's open, it's, it's, what is it? <laughs> it's an unnerving experience. Their throat, the throat of you and me, our throats are open graves. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the testimony of scripture about you and about me. In our natures apart from God's grace, supernatural, special grace at work in our lives. And you cannot begin to understand yourself, you cannot begin to appreciate the kindness of God, particularly the kindness of God in Jesus Christ, the gospel, without accepting that testimony. You have to listen to that diagnosis, that judgment of scripture about you and about your loved ones and you have to accept it as true before you can even begin to seek after God or to understand his kindness and the, the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. You and me, because of our natures, there is no end to the wickedness that we are capable of. There is no end to how awful we can be. We're not nice. We're not good. We're not loving. And we are capable of awful things. But we do not do all that we're capable of. Why? Why? Your neighbor does not do the, all the awful things that their nature is capable of. Why? Well, the reason is God restrains sin. You can see him doing this actively, himself intervening in people's lives in the pages of scripture. He put a mark on Cain, the murderer. Cain was afraid that he in turn would get murdered. <laughs> And he, was, and he complained about it to God and God said, I'm gonna put a mark on you so that no one will murder you. God restrained other potential murderers by setting this, whatever this mark was, on Cain. That's an intervention restraining of sin on the part of God. God comes to a Gentile heathen king named Abimelech in a dream and he says, Abimelech, you're a dead man because you took another man's wife as your own. And Abimelech says, I didn't know she was somebody else's wife. And God says, I know, you did act in, in integrity. But he says, I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So he took her for his wife, but they had not been intimate. And God says, I kept you from doing that. Isn't that amazing? Anybody ever felt God's 
intervention, restraining power in your life, holding you back from the brink of awful things? That's a kindness of God that is granted to this world. God does that. He does not let us act out on all of our desires. And that's a kindness that you can be thankful for. This world would otherwise be hellish. And by comparison to what it could be, it's actually really nice because of God's restraining influence in our lives. There's other places in scripture we could look to, but I want to jump to a more immediate restraining influence on sin that God has instituted. God sometimes immediately acts, intervenes himself, as we saw in those scriptures. But often, maybe even more often, he works through secondary causes or institutions. In in particular, in this case, an institution that he himself set up and ordained. And he did it right after the flood. Here's what he says after the flood. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. That is the institution of the civil government. That right there. That's where God established a principle that of the sword of judgment and justice in the world. If you kill a man, by a man, you will be killed. And it's not like because of a principle of vengeance. <laughs> it's like a, it's a principle of justice. And the whole order of the civil government flows from that right there, that institution of God. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul calls this civil order, this civil government, a minister of God for your good. And he warns that if you do what is evil, you should be afraid. Because this civil government does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God works through the governmental order to restrain sin. That's its purpose in this world. It doesn't do this absolutely or perfectly, but it does it. That's what it's here for. Now, are you grateful for it? If I were to put up here on the screen a random sampling of Facebook posts, from the last year and a half from your Facebook account, (laughs) what would we conclude? How would we have to answer the question? Are you grateful to God for your civil government and the order he has established? It is never perfect. It can't be perfect, it's run by men. It sometimes will do its job and and execute justice better, and sometimes it'll do it worse. In some instances, it does better. In some instances, it does worse. It's not perfect, but it's there, and it restrains. So are you grateful? You should be. You should be very grateful. The absence of that civil order, that government, is a horrible thought. Because it is a restraint against sin. The absence of a military is in a country like ours is a horrible thought. Because it, is a, it, is a, it protects you. It restrains evil. I know we could, uh, probably in your mind, are coming up all of the evils it itself perpetrates against us. <laughs> But yes, okay, can we just say that's always the case with every authority, including ours in the church? 
we're men. We're imperfect. The civil authority is ordained by God as a minister for your good to restrain your wickedness and that of your neighbor. And it's something we should be grateful for. So are you grateful for it? It would be hell on earth without our government. Here's what I said in the first service. It's a little edgy. A progressive, liberal, civil government and leaders, a system like that, is far, far better than no government at all. Don't wish it away. Many, uh, there's been many, the, the, the pitch of our resentment against the government is rising, has been rising throughout the last couple of years, turning it up. And if we took our words seriously, our complaints, our grievances, our, you know, our exasperations seriously at face value and implemented them, then I, we would conclude that it's, we're better off without government. We're not better off without our government. We're not. Be thankful for what you have. Work to improve it. That's your right. That's your duty as a citizen. Yeah. Oh, even maybe resort to prayer. God commands us to pray for our leaders so that we can live a quiet dignified life and all tranquility that's good that's honorable pray for that work for it through all lawful channels but be grateful there better be gratitude in your heart and in your orientation towards the government or you're not faithful to God you're not obeying the Lord And you're dishonoring this really important aspect of his common grace and his work in this world. He is actively right now, through our authorities, restraining sin. And be glad for that. Second, uh, the second part of the, or the second thing that God does in restraining or withholding something in this world is, is, is probably the bigger one. And that is, he's restraining his own anger and wrath against sin. Do you remember what he did? Uh, he, he, came, he came right up to destroying everybody <laughs> at the worldwide flood. Only Noah found favor in his sight, and he spared the family of Noah and sort of started again through that family. Okay? But you remember what, he's, what he did? He made a covenant with Noah and with creation at that point. And he set a bow in the sky and he said, whenever I look at that bow, I'm going to remember my promise and I'm not going to destroy by water this world again. God restrains his own anger and wrath, which is perfectly justifiable on his part. Remember Adam, what he said to Adam? When he, about the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God, without making himself a liar, because he did bring a, in death into this world as a punishment for that sin, still allowed Adam to live out a lot of years and allowed Adam to have children and to perpetuate the human race into the future. He gave Adam a future. He restrains his wrath. In the midst of wrath, he remembers mercy. He is restrained in his approach to this world. He has justifiable anger. He had every right to destroy Adam right then. He had had the right to destroy everybody at the flood. And he restrained himself from it. Be glad for that. The scripture is full of evidences of God's patience and long-suffering. Psalm 145 told us God is 
slow to anger. He tolerates a lot. He is patient, long-suffering, and merciful. When Paul is preaching in Athens, the great city of learning, Paul says that, he says to his audience that God has overlooked times of ignorance. He has turned his gaze away because it would, it would anger him too much. Sometimes we just have to do that. We can't look at the thing that angers us. God is like that. He makes a conscious choice to, to overlook, to look away, to tolerate for a time, for a, pur- for a purpose. And the purpose that's implied to the audience at, in Acts in 17 in Athens is that God could have already destroyed them. He's tolerated and overlooked their times of ignorance so that they might live to this day to hear this message and believe the gospel. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's patience you better be grateful for. <laughs> he gives time. He gave time for you to come to know him. He's, if he's extending that favor to other people now, and it causes you to have to live with some tension in your life, some frustration in your life, some difficult relationships at work or whatever, you better be thankful God could do a lot worse, you know? He could just be done, but he's not. He was kind to you. Don't resent his kindness to others, especially just because it causes you a little discomfort in your life, you know? You don't have the perfect town that you want. You don't have the perfect neighborhood that you want. You have to deal with some tension in your life because of unbelievers and learning to get along with them. God's patience is a, is a wonderful thing and a gift His restraint of his own anger is a wonderful gift to this world. Are you patient? Particularly with unbelievers? God is. Where's your patience for them? Those are the negative things, the, the things that God withholds from this world, which are gracious, you know? Those are gracious. If he, with, if he restrains sin and keeps this world together, keeps it from being as awful as it could be, if he restrains his wrath from breaking out on it and destroying the whole thing in a moment, that's kind. Man, that's kind. It's good for him to withhold those things. But what about what he gives and produces? There's a lot to say about this. The first thing is that he gives a lot of prosperity and a lot of blessing and a lot of fruitfulness and a lot of beauty to this world. And it's not just for his people. He gives that to his enemies. The classic text that, um, about that is taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he is calling his, his hearers, you and me, his people, to love their enemies because God loves his enemies. And here's how God loves his enemies. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He causes his sun to rise every morning over the evil and over the good. That's the kindness of God. He causes this world to flower to bloom in abundance. This world is incredibly fertile and it produces incredible fruit. The corn is ripening out here from the farmer. Your gardens are probably on their way out for the year. But if you had a garden, you saw it was a good year for growing a lot of things. And as I've said before, it is amazing. You can just put a seed in the ground and boom, 
If you know, some, if you, sometimes even if you don't know what you're doing, but especially if you know what you're doing, it can really, but you can't possibly attribute all that boom to what you do. It's like magic, but it's not magic. It's God's blessing of fruitfulness, and he, he's generous with it. He's so generous, he just, he gives it to everybody. God blesses this world. It's full of beauty. It's full of fruit. In Psalms it says he sends the rain to soften the ground. And what I think of is how hard the ground should be to match the hardness of our hearts. The ground should not bear fruit for you and me. The fact that it grows thistles and weeds is annoying and that's the punishment because of our sin. But that is not the punishment we deserve. It's just a testament. A taste of judgment. It's a soft and gentle taste. So, are you like God? Are you generous, gracious, particularly towards your enemies? Towards your neighbors who don't know God? Do you give them your attention? Do you give them your stuff? Do you share your table with them, the fruit that God has blessed you with? God is, he just, he is so benevolent and kind that, and we are to be like him in this. This is at the center of, the, of Jesus' sermon to the, the, and when he's in the middle of his sermon and the point of the sermon when he's saying, love your enemies, he says, God's like this. He, he sends rain on the just and unjust. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And then he says, do, do likewise so that you'll be his sons. Be perfect as he is perfect. His, his generosity, his love of his enemies, his indiscriminate blessing of the world is a perfection of his that you and I are to aspire to. Be perfect as he is perfect. Are you generous? I know you're generous with one another. We see that all the time. It's amazing. And it's drop dead gorgeous. The generosity and the love. And you should prefer your brothers. No doubt about that. But does there, is there any more <laughs> that we can do? Can we dig deeper to love our neighbors, to love the people of this town, to be generous with them? You may not think of sharing yourself with the people of this town as generous. It is. God has made us to be relational. He's made us to be part of society, to come together. That's how God has made us. Can we come together with Bloomington ever in any way outside of the Christmas (laughs) sing-along? I want to think that we can. I want to think that we must. I believe that we must if we're going to be like God. Second thing that God allows, produces, works in this world that's in the positive bin is that he allows unregenerate men, unsaved men, to do good. You're not the only one that does good. Now, uh, this is complicated, okay? (laughs) Bear with me in a minute. This is like the, the diciest part of preparing for this sermon and trying to think this through. This is, we gotta be careful here. Because scripture on the one hand says, no one does good. And that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And something else in Romans, 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? That's true. I, we cannot deny that. That's true. But how can you look at your neighbors, this world, the history of the world? We can certainly, we can see depravity at work. But we, if we're not being honest, if we don't recognize that there's a lot of good out there. There's a lot of, at least as human as we can judge, there's a lot of noble examples of of great deeds, of kindness, of heroism in this world. There are non-believing people who seem at least to act in ways more proper than you, (laughs) better than you, There are people that think more accurately than you think that don't know God and behave better who don't know God. How do we make about that? Or what do we we make about that? Well, one place we can look in Scripture to see that this is acknowledged, that there's there's a kind of goodness, that a residual goodness that remains in in man generally, is when Jesus is is saying this in Matthew 7, he says, if you then, men, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, you know that passage? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to you if you ask? That's like, so Jesus is making a point. He's calling us to have faith in God, and he makes that point by acknowledging that even though you're evil, you know how to do some things that are just good. They're just good. There's something, there's something innate and intuitive that remains in us. Don't think of you as a Christian for a second. Think of you as a fallen man in your nature, in your, in your, in your natural state and condition apart from God. There remains something in you that knows what's good and that does seek to do it to the best of your ability. It is not good enough for God. No question about that. You can't come to God on those terms. Somebody else's righteousness is needed for that. That's Jesus. But he has left in this world an amazing witness. And the way we account for it is we, re- we remember that we bear the image of God. And even though in, this, in the fall, when we fell into sin, It was twisted and marred and corrupted, almost beyond recognition. It's still there. And Paul talks about the law being written on our hearts and how the Gentiles at that time, the unbelieving, you know, the heathen, they they have a law and they almost, he says, he uses the word intuitively, follow it. Groping around in the darkness but there's something there that's good that remains. Now, the reason I bring this up is, is why. Don't write off the world. Don't write off your neighbor. They're made in the image of God. There's something precious made by God that it resides in them. Love them. And most of them, there is a way to love them because there's something lovable about most everybody. There's something interesting about most everybody. Would you take an interest in them? Love them because they're worthy of your respect if for no other reason than they bear God's image, but because often they are worthy of your respect. (laughs) They're respectable. They're earnest. They're trying to do what they think is right, at least. They may be stumbling around in the darkness. Shine a light for them through your testimony, through teaching them God's word. But take an interest in them. It's an amazing thing that God has left that some light 
of truth alive in people's hearts. It's not completely gone, even though they can't find their way to God. Lead them there through your love. We cannot go Amish. That's another, (laughs) that is another application of what I'm saying. We cannot go Amish. We cannot kiss off the world, circle the wagons, unplug, and that is not a solution. That's not a solution. That's not a winning strategy. Might last some generations, but it's not a winning strategy. It's it's going nowhere. The New Testament assumes that you're going to be mixing it up. You're going to be at their dinner party where you're not in control of the menu. (laughs) The New Testament assumes this. It's an amazing, uh, I just, there's so many scriptures to love and for so many different reasons, but on this point, my favorite scripture is from 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing a follow-up letter to his first letter to this particular church, and he's afraid that in the first letter he's caused a problem unintentionally. You know about the law of unintended consequences? You try to fix one thing, but you cause a problem over here. He's afraid he might have caused a problem. There's a little bit of confusion, and so he's writing the second time in part to clear that up, and here's what he says. I wrote to you in my first letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. (laughs) Well, actually, you can find a way to go up just about out of the world if you want to. You can find a corner of Montana. You can... You can build a big building and have programs for yourself as a church, live out your days with the people who have the same, you know, thinking as you. There's some things you got to put up with in small group, but for the most part, you know, you can be with your people, your tribe. Now, the, the household of faith is not a tribe. It's a wonderful thing. I'm not diminishing it. I'm not equating it with any other group. We can't, we can't pull out. We gotta go. We gotta press in. Press into our town. Press into the homes in our neighborhood. Invite them into our homes. We gotta mix it up. That's a winning strategy. That's what the Apostle Paul did wherever he went. He got in there. He went, you know, first to the synagogue, then he went to the market, and then he was in people's homes, and he was mixing it up and doing the work of loving people and preaching and witnessing and caring for them. Remember what he says as he's departing one town, I think it's Ephesus, I did not fail to say anything that was profitable to you. We fail to say a lot of things, particularly to this lost and dying world. This little light of mine Hide it under a bushel I hope not. Thank you, Dee. Lastly, and I'm afraid we're only able to just scratch the surface here. It's very frustrating. What I'd like to do is right now is introduce it and then ask Josh Congrove and Eric Rasmussen and Chris Connell and Ben Burlingham and Aaron Jones and all people who study the world and the amazing things about the world and delight and wonder at it to come up and just talk at you for hours. That's what I'd like to do. It would be fascinating. But this last point is that God causes to flourish in this world art and science and learning and technology in this world which is rebellious against him. It's amazing.
And the, uh, one of the amazing things about it is where it began and who it began with. It began with Cain. Culture began with Cain, really. He and his son, or he built for his son a city. He's the first architect, designer, civil engineer. His descendants did what? Developed musical instruments. What else? He has a descendant who did what? Was a metallurgist. You know what that is? I think I said that right. Works with metal, iron and bronze, and made implements and things, tools. Another ancestor, or uh, another descendant who did, uh, was the first to shepherd flocks and probably invented the whole, tech, uh, the whole uh, art of, and science of breeding. Culture is not the, pur- the exclusive purview of you as a Christian. It belongs to this world. And that is a common grace of God. And man, we can see it everywhere. I found that in preparing for this, I immediately want to think about all the, the, the negative things. I just think that that's a function of my ingratitude towards God. I think it's a spiritual fault. Because there is so much amazing wonder in this world that God has produced through men, many of whom were unbelieving. Your whole understanding of civics did not come, well, who did it come from? It came from the Greeks. Incredible things that have been blessed, that God has blessed us with in this world through men, through men who didn't know him. And how did, well, Josh Congrove, what I really wish I could do before Josh and all the other men got up to talk to you for hours is read this lengthy section of Augustine's City of God where he's talking about all the amazing things that God has produced through culture and flourishing in the world. It's a wonderful section. We don't have time to read it, but if you're interested, you can look up book 22, Chapter 24 of the City of God. Book 22, chapter 24 of the City of God. Augustine goes on and on about this science and that technology and this amazing thing and navigation this and recipes that and musical tones this. And it's it's just wonderful. This is a wonderful world to live in. Why do I bring it up? What's the application of the point? Are you glad to live in it? Do you take an interest in it? Are you looking, are you developing eyes to see God's hand at work in blessing you in this world in ways you and this world don't deserve? As I, after the first service, a gentleman came up to me and he said, I think one of the most amazing things to me is sanitation. That's a real game changer. It's true. It's more of a game changer than going to the moon. I mean, think of the lives it has saved. That's kind of God. Do we have, so I, I pressed this on civil government and our sort of distrust and, you know, uh, complaining nature towards civil government. Do, how, what's your orientation towards technology and science? I know there's dangers. <laughs> I know there's implications. I know there's abuses. But God is at work in blessing the world through it. You can't deny that or you're not thinking right. You're not seeing right. God's being very kind to this world through advances in medicine. He's very kind in advances in, of the, in the creative arts through history. 
wonderfully enriching things that he has blessed this world with, treasure, treasure of culture. We should prize it. We should value it. We should celebrate it and give thanks and glory to God for it. We should teach our children what God has produced that's good. We should teach them God produced it and not separate out our, our, our church life, our Christian life from other, the rest of life. If you're going to read anything about common grace, just a, a, a warning about it, those are deep waters. There's a lot of words about it to get through. Abraham Kuyper, who's one of the, known as one of the people who did the most thinking and writing on this subject in, in, in the tr- history of the church so far, published 2,200 pages on it. And he's just one of a lot of writers <laughs> to, to sort through. I did not read 2,200 pages in preparing for this, if you hadn't noticed. But he, um, he, it's deep waters. If you're going to read one thing about it, just read the few pages in Calvin's Institutes about this. This is probably the most helpful thing, the most balanced. And he, he does not hesitate to say that all of those things, and he, he points to those men who God appointed to build the tabernacle under Moses, who were filled with God's spirit, with all kind of skill for craftsmanship. He does not hesitate to say that, God, that God's spirit is at work in this world, wherever you see ingenuity and progress and creativity, that's the spirit of God and his influence that God could at any moment take back to himself, but he continues to bless the world with it. And for us to fail to make a good use of what the Spirit of God is giving us through these developments, we deserve everything we get, is what he says. Let me just read it to you, because it, it might or might not apply to vaccines. Don't blame me. If the Lord has willed that we will be helped in physics, dialectic, mathematics, and other like disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, Let us use this assistance, for if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. God is blessing this world and blessing you and blessing his church and caring for us and looking out for us through the ingenuity and achievement of his enemies. Isn't that amazing? So just, just a couple of words here about literature. Some of the very best, most perceptive, most helpful writers in history are the worst kind of men. Just just bad men. They would not be, they might, they might like, I'm thinking of Tolstoy in particular. Tolstoy would not be accepted into membership in any, any respecting church, a respectable church, you know? It would just, he just wouldn't. He was, he was a lousy man. Claimed the name of Christ, but man, he was lousy. But that guy, God gifted to write and was perceptive and you should read him Very helpful to learn how to understand human motivation, psychology. You'll learn a lot about yourself. You'll learn a lot about other people. You'll be helped. We should not disregard what God is giving us in the treasures that he's producing in this world. So just two or three quick applications, takeaways from all this, all right? Be thankful. Don't, first of all, be aware. Have eyes to see what God is doing and be grateful to him. Praise him. Practice gratitude in your heart towards God for the blessings that he has given to this world. Develop an appreciating eye for the goodness of God and instill that in your children. Teach them 
about what God is doing and be amazed, teach them to be amazed at it and to wonder at it. We are an ungrateful lot. Secondly, we are not to fly from the world, but to be God's ambassadors to her. There is no neutral ground in this world. As Abraham Kuyper, I talked about the 2200-page guy. Abraham Kuyper said famously, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It belongs to him. But he's ordained it that we share it. We share space with this world. We cannot be Amish. (laughs) We got to find a way of getting on in this world and to try to advance the cause of Christ in this world. That's our calling. That's our mission. Let's be about it. Let's instead of, let's, let's put to death our Amish tendencies. I got them, you got them. Let's put them to death and let's, le- let's press in to our community, our town, and see what God does. Last thing, love, our, love your enemies as Christ, as God loves his. Love your enemies. You were once his enemy and he loved you. He was very patient as he waited for you to yield. He's patient with other people. You be patient with them. You were, such were some of you, is the message of the New Testament. And that, I think that's a, calling us to be empathetic and sympathetic to our lost neighbors. Oh yeah, you're right. That was me too. Have empathy for them. Love them. Be patient with them. See what you can do for them. Most of the time, they're not going to hate you for it. Sometimes you're going to run into trouble. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they'll push back and they'll make you pay. Some, there are some nasty people, okay? And, and Jesus says, love them. He says, yes, enemies. And in some sense, because of the work of the rebirth in your life, where you were a part of this mass of dead and trespasses and sins people. Jesus gave, granted you life. He adopted you into his home. He, he trans, you, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a sense in which everybody who's not with you in that is your enemy because they're God's enemies. And God says... Here's what, then act like me. Okay, yeah, they're your enemies. Now act like me towards them. Love them. Love them. And if you do, so that you will be sons of your father. Who, what son doesn't want to be like his father? Look to God and see that he loves his enemies. Want to be like that, like your dad. And then you will be perfect like he's perfect. That is his one, it's like the most clearest statement about his perfection in scripture is that, his love for his enemies. Love the world. Don't despise it, particularly the people in it. Do we need that message? I need that. It is so easy, particularly right now, to kind of polarize and, and, and play it safe and circle the wagons, look askance at people, but we feel the world pressing in. We feel the blessing of civil government <laughs> pressing in, you know, not leaving you any room to live or breathe. but it doesn't change anything. Be grateful. Love. Press in. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd help us in this, that you, the God of love, the God of patience, the God of loving kindness and grace, would implant those things in our hearts, establish them 
as habits in our lives. Especially help us, Lord, to love our neighbors, to seek ways to improve them, to help them, to get to know them. Help us to take the many opportunities that you do afford us already, but to even seek new ones out of love and genuine interest and love for the people you've created. Help us to value them and their eternal souls. Help us to value them as people, not just as projects, but as people worthy of love and kindness who are loved by you in many tangible ways. Help us to be patient and kind and to to demonstrate that we are true sons of you by these qualities. We depend on you. They're not natural to us. So would your spirit work them in us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.